This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, let's kick the tires and light the fires, Big Daddy. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. I'm with my, my big brother, John. Say hi, John. Hi, John. And you are tuning into the podcast called This Is Not Church. Um, why? Maybe you were tricked into coming by. I don't know. Maybe you were yeah, bribed probably. by somebody. It, it, all kinds of reasons why people stumble. Across. I could be, wait, hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I could be bribed. I, I could be bribed to come on this podcast. You mean people might give me money? Haven't you been bribed to this point? Well, not with like money. Oh, no. But every time I promise you that I will be here, oh, that is a, okay, that's a okay. promise of a reward for your showing up. So, John, you have been bribed. Consider yourself bribed. So, okay. All um, right. I hear your cat. Yeah, I know. Right. I uh, had the, the temerity to leave the cat alone all day. And now he's making his presence known. Like, <laughs> how dare you? Yeah. At least he didn't destroy the camper while I was gone today. So anyway, uh, we digress as we normally do. Yep. We should actually, yep. that should be the tagline, John. This is not church podcast. Uh, we digress. Yes. Every, Every day. Do, what do you do on the podcast? Uh, we digress. <laughs> we rabbit trail. We lose the plot constantly. Yep. But we, uh, in about we are, 30 seconds. In about, yeah, we should actually start timing how long it takes for us to start rabbit trailing. It doesn't matter. That's what people are here for. It's, it's the charm, John. This is the charm of the podcast. So um, <laughs> anyway, all right, before we get too far afield here, uh, we're here today with an awesome guest. I'll read, I'll read a quick, quick, quick bio, and then we're just going to jump head first into a conversation. But Daniel Henderson is with us. Let me read this for you real quick. With a 40-year career in education, Daniel Henderson has the grounding of being a lifelong Midwesterner and having traveled extensively. His teaching career in the field of history and religion has given many of his students inspiration and motivation to pursue their own careers in these fields. Dan has traveled to Europe and Central America and all over the United States. He has a passion for history and historic sites. He is currently publishing a personal story of his own faith journey called Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical. It will be out in the fall of 2022. And that, my friends, is a very quick bio, but we're going to get more from the man himself. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I got to tell you that, the you know, I've got a long bio, but... My biggest goal in life right now is to grow a beard as long as you guys. <laughs> well, see, that, my friend, is a worthy aspiration. Yes, I, I've got a beard. I've got a beard, but it's not quite, the, you know, it's not quite like you guys. So. It's kind of like we were talking about before we started recording. This is uh, less a uh, style or, a, you know, some sort of choice and less just a function of my laziness. I just don't like to shave. And so I don't want to. I don't know. I'm not sure what John's excuse is, except that. His is his beard is majestic, so why why not? It is. It is They're awesome. It, it is majestic. Well, I mean, for me, it was when I turned fifty. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I, yeah, I, I don't care what people think about the way I look anymore. If this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to do. There you go. Well, the secret the secret was no one ever cared to begin with. So it's right, true, yeah. See? You know, so that's the thing you have to learn. By the time you get my age, you you realize nobody really cared ever. Yeah, in right. your life. So. I think the only person that ever really cared about like how long my hair was was my father, and he was having none oh, of that. Yeah, yeah. Was, dads will dads will care. Yeah, dad. That's dad true. didn't quite understand the argument. I used to I used to really bristle at this because people in our you know John and I were raised up in the seventies and eighties in youth group and the evangelical churches, and they used to get onto us about our long hair. And I'm like, a Jesus had long hair. Every picture I've ever seen where you depict Jesus, he has long hair, but. Um, but suddenly I'm feminine or, a, you know, whatever they would always, you know, try yeah, to, try to yeah. shame us into cutting us, cutting our hair. They, they, yeah. I mean, they make us read the story of Samson who loses his power when his hair is cut off. And I'm like, yeah. I just, I'm just trying to retain mine. Okay. Like, like <laughs> none of those arguments were ever persuasive though, were they? No, like, but dad, I'm just trying to be like no. Jesus. He's like, nah, no, you're not bullshit. No, you're not. <laughs> you just want to be like those rock and rollers. So anyway, Hey, if you don't mind, Dan, our, our, our normal jumping off point. Question wise, and we get a, a guest and we want to get to know somebody is to ask them 
a little bit about their faith journey. So if you don't mind kind of bringing us up to speed on how that all went down, that'd be great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, uh, I've i been a, a, a born-again evangelical Christian for about 40 years. I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade in 1964. Now, that was a, a while ago. Um, I was a young kid, and I grew up in the church, probably like you guys did, I suppose. But I, uh, I went forward, accepted Christ, and for 40 years after that, until oh, 2005, something like that, I lived as an evangelical. I was a teacher in Christian schools. I went to seminary, went to Bible college, did the whole route. And uh, along the way, I had doubts. I had uncertainties. I had things that just didn't fit, thoughts and, and, and ideas that didn't fit. And, I, and of course, in the evangelical world, I couldn't really bring that up. I couldn't talk about those things. And, but they were there. And, uh, but by, by 2005, I walked away and, and said, that's enough. I, I can't deal with it anymore. And, uh, I'm moving on. So that's where I'm at. Now, the, the result of that was I started writing. I started writing about this transition and, uh, it resulted in a book, which was just published last month in October here by Choir Publishing. And, uh, man, it has taken off. I can't tell you how well it's taken off and people are really enjoying it. Wow. Okay. And so that book is the Confessions of a Recovering Evangelical, right? Which that's it. Yeah. Bio yeah. Says will be coming out, but in truth, it has come out. Yeah. Yeah. It came out about a week, maybe, maybe about a week and a half ago. Right? Awesome. Okay. Well, that's amazing. Right. Uh, we're, uh, big fans of choir, John and I. So, uh, we have, uh, we have a good relationship with those guys. And, yeah, uh, they're great. Just, uh, they're great over there. And I love, I love the direction that they've gone, and I love what they're going to continue to pursue as, as Matt and Keith take over the helm and push things forward. It's really great. So yeah, so let's let's uh, let's talk about this book then. So from your perspective, having been sort of died in the wool, born and raised evangelical, I guess. I mean, at what age were you when you went forward? You said. Well, I, I must have been around 10 years old, but right, so yeah, yeah, you know, being an evangelical before 1980 was very different than being an evangelical after 1980. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, when I became an evangelical, we were still kind of in the hippie movement. We were Jesus people. We, we didn't even call ourselves Christian. We, you know, we, we were just running around with other hippies and talking about loving people and, and the message of Christ really kind of resonated with a lot of folks like that in those days, uh, as we were reaching out to, you know, in the civil rights movement and the war, all that good stuff. And, uh, then I found out by 1980 that you had to be, you had to vote for Ronald Reagan to be a good Christian. And, and that was a shock. That was a shock to me. I had never had anybody tell me that I had to be, you know, of a certain political party uh, or persuasion to, uh, to be a good Christian. Never entered my mind. And, uh, that really set me off on a, on a different course. Uh, I stayed with it for a long time after that, but it was just, it was just so, uh, uh, counterintuitive to me. To think about that, that, uh, you know, and, and you can see today where it's led. You can see where it's ended up. It's, oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's now just crazy. It's craziness is, is what evangelical Christianity has become. Well, and I, it's Christian. I, go ahead. Well, I was just to say, I, I, I think Nat and I have, we've talked about this before. It's like Nat and I were byproducts of the Jesus movement, right? So my, our parents, our, our mother was raised Christian. My dad didn't really become quote unquote born again until about 75. So I, I was five, Nat was four when our, when our father became a born again Christian. But one of the first groups that they were, that they belonged to was a Bible study of a lot of what we would call the Jesus, Jesus movement people. And I, and I've written about this and I've talked about this that if you were to walk into the Bible study that our that our parents were in, you would say, okay, this is a bunch of people who literally just walked out of Haight Ashbury and started a Bible study. Uh, yeah. my parents yeah. connected with that group of people, even though they weren't really the, of the, of the hippie generation. I mean, they weren't of the generation, but they weren't uh, what you would call quote unquote hippies. But what's interesting is how quickly that changes, right? Uh, so you yeah. have this idea yeah. of, 
connecting to a person, Jesus, who has shown you the way to be free, uh, to be, to love one another, love your neighbor, love your enemy, all that stuff. And then what I found was very interesting was how quickly they started putting rules into place. And they just became another form of Christian evangelical, which then as we move, as we head to where we are now, it's a word that Nat and I both now kind of are on the same page. I believe that it is not, it's not salvageable. The word evangelical is lost to us, even though we know that it has a much better meaning than what is being portrayed today. But the, the word evangelical for me is gone. The word Christian for me is gone. Nat's, Nat's die hardly holding on to it, but I have, I have let it go as well. But well, I have too. Uh, in fact, I, w- I wish we could go back to just being Jesus people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just being known for that, you know, for the teachings of Christ. Yeah. Uh, that, that to me would be acceptable. Yeah. Christianity, uh, being a Christian, being an evangelical is, it, it's really more a political identity than it is anything else now. And, uh, so it really has very little meaning in a spiritual sense. You know, in a religious sense, it may have a little meaning, but it, it has no meaning in, in terms of what spirituality is, connecting with people, loving people. And, uh, it's, it's, it's just simply a political agenda. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I mean, how sad is that, that that's where we are now, right? Yeah. And, and, and I, I'm, you know, for me personally, the word evangelical, I, I, I don't miss it. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt my feelings that, uh, in, that I am not in any way connected to it. I, I seriously don't miss it. The word Christian, I'm kind of sad that it, that it has, it's lost its way in so many ways that I can't call myself a Christian anymore. And, we, and we've talked about this before too. I mean, when someone asks me if I'm a Christian, I, I, I have to ask the question back. Well, what do you, what does that mean to you? Uh, and, question, and then, yeah. you know, from that answer, I can tell them yes or no. Uh, but, you know, yeah. I would, I yeah. would consider myself a Jesus follower or a follower of the way, which is, you know, very historically correct to say anyway. Um, but for the most part, when people, you know, when you ask, well, what do you, what does Christian mean to you? When they give you, you know, when they can see what's happening in this world today within the, within the Christian world. Uh, I would have to pretty much denounce most of what they think is a Christian. And it's because of yeah, you know, the, yeah. the, the hatred, the vitriol that connects to that word, right? Well, and I, yeah, and I saw that happening, uh, very early on. I mean, once the moral majority came on the scene in the 1980s and, uh, you know, what, what that led to in the 1990s. And then by the time we get to two thousands, it was, it was clear to me that, that, quote, evangelicals were becoming simply a, a, uh, were being absorbed, if you will, and quite frankly, exploited by political operatives within the Republican Party. Uh, and anytime, anytime religion and politics met, mix, it's the religion that's going to suffer. It's the religion that is going to be completely decimated. Religion cannot play <laughs> a, uh, sanctification role in politics. It just isn't going to happen that way. And so by 2005, I, so it's been about 15, over 15 years now since I've kind of walked away from it. But you still over, you know, over time, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but over time, even once you leave that behind you, you begin to unlearn, you have to unlearn a lot of things. You have to begin to kind of reconstruct what faith means, what, what it means to follow Jesus, because it isn't what it used to be. It isn't what you thought it was. And so that's, that's really kind of what my book is about. It's about that process of deconstructing all that and then reconstructing something that, uh, that, that is actually very, very spiritual for me anyway, and, and meaningful. I don't know. Did you notice this though, too? Um, I, I was naively hopeful. When, uh, when Donald Trump came on the scene, and I'll, t- I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, I was naively hopeful that he was such a stark example of what you just described, where a political party would pander to a certain voting block. There was no subtlety in his pandering whatsoever. 
And I was, and I was hopeful that, that because it was so obvious and so over the top that he was literally just manipulating people for votes that they would see through it. And it turns out we like it too much. We enjoy being pandered to. And, and it's, it's really, that, that's been the hardest thing for me to get over. I, I, there's been plenty of people throughout my lifetime who I thought were politically dishonest and, you know, bad for the country and whatever. You, but I, I have not been part of something that turned family members against each other as, uh, as often as this whole process did. And I found myself at odds with lots of people that I used to love and respect. I still love, but my respect level went way down. Because <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> how are you not seeing this? This guy embodies everything that you dislike. He is literally the antithesis of everything your religion teaches. But because he's on your side, you'll excuse all of it. Yeah. And to me, it was just a huge power grab. Yeah. And actually, in my book, I have a chapter called Thanking Donald Trump. Cool. Okay. And it's, but it's not, it's not quite what you described. Actually, what I describe in that chapter is evangelicals, because of Donald Trump, were able to take their mask off. Yeah. They've been pretending, they've been pretending for years that they pretended to care for people. They really didn't. They pretended to take, care for the poor. They really didn't. They don't care about that. Donald Trump gave them permission to take the mask off. There's no illusion. There's no faking it now. Evangelicals look in the mirror and they see Donald Trump. Now, the reason I write that we can thank Donald Trump is because I think it gave impetus and and a catalyst for some other things to happen, like the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, gay rights, I mean, gun rights, these movements, and even though they don't look like they're maybe, you know, dominant at the moment, I think they will be. And that that's the part I'm hopeful about, <laughs> is that yes. down the road, yeah. we actually are going to come out on top of it. But no one has to be in any way fooled by evangelicals anymore. They are what they are. And if you look at Donald Trump, that's what they are. Well, and, and, the, and the sad part of all of this is, so it makes us miss someone like Ronald Reagan. When we, when we put them in comparison, you know, there are even people on the liberal side saying, you know what, I wish we had another Ronald Reagan. But the sad part is Ronald Reagan was a horrible president when it came to things like, like you're just mentioning, LGBTQIA plus rights, uh, Specifically with yeah. the AIDS, yeah, right? With, with the AIDS, uh, AIDS epidemic, who he, you know, conveniently and very, for, for a very long time, wouldn't even comment on it. His, uh, the war on drugs that started, well, prior to Reagan, but Reagan really, like, oh, Reagan really pumped it up, right, though. You know, the, um, yeah. uh, but that's how far the pendulum has swung that even liberals sometimes will say, I kind of miss Reagan. And he was not specifically with the, the liberal agenda that we are looking at, which is with the gay rights, indigenous rights, black lives, you know, the, 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 the BIPOC community, all of that. He was not, a, he was not an ally no. of any of that. I think what they mean, at least I, for me anyway, what it would mean to say, yeah, I wish, wish we were back with Ronald Reagan is there was a certain civility that went with doing politics in that day so that a guy like uh, uh, Speaker of the House, can't remember his name right off the top of my head. Tip O'Neill? Yeah, Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, they, they would dine together. They would get together and they were civil to one another and they would work out deals and they would, you know, they would, they would get thing, a few things done. Probably didn't make everybody happy because compromise does that. I mean, it, it usually doesn't make everyone happy, but at least it was a civility. The, the thing I see now with evangelicals being so much a part of the political process is they have brought an apocalyptic, uh, attitude to it, meaning it's, it's a zero sum game. Either we win or nobody wins or either we win or Satan wins. That means all the Democrats are evil and they're part of Satan's kingdom. So that's why you get people now with guns patrolling voting stations because they want to keep the evil people <laughs> away from voting. And they really don't care about voting anyway. They just care about power. That's all they're really worried about. But 
but it, it, it's it's really has metastasized into something that's quite frankly very very scary and very 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 difficult. Yeah, and and it's gone so far as to I believe we're living in an age where we've always talked about end times. End times has always been part of the theology of the evangelical church. But I we are living Absolutely. we are living in an age of a a political party and a religious group of people who are actively trying to make it happen. And if it means dropping nuclear bombs on people to help move forward the second coming of Christ, they are 1,000% behind it. And that scares the shit out of me. Yeah, I, it's another chapter in my book, by the way. My my book covers just about everything you can think <laughs> yeah. of in, in the evangelical world. But I got a chapter on end times theology and how it threatens our culture. And uh, that kind of thinking, that apocalyptic thinking, is very much a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. And if you want, if if you think God is coming back with his armies of angels, if you can make a war happen on earth, well, you know what? You can probably, if you get in, if you get into the realms of power where you can make things happen, maybe you can make that happen. And, uh, it, it, uh, it, it's absolutely a horrible idea. And it threatens uh, not only our culture, but it threatens the whole world, quite frankly. So, uh, I agree with you. I think, uh, that end times theology is, is, is just uh, a horrible threat. Well, na- yeah, to us. Well, it's, for me, it's like, uh, go ahead, John, sorry, you, you, what were you saying? I was just going to uh, ask you to comment on something you've commented on before, and that's this this uh, organization called IHOP, uh, which... Uh, oh, it's really... How, how weird is that? I was literally Googling IHOP. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I forgot the guy's name. I was going to bring up Mike Bickle. So you got, you know, Kansas City, big, huge church called International House of Prayer. Mike Bickle is the pastor there and they are steeped in this stuff. The, the, the entire, the entire point of that church is that they have this, while this the international house of prayer is that they're 24 seven, somebody in that place praying and they're praying specifically for the end times to come, praying to, to, to usher those, those times in. And Mike Bickle has, you know, CDs after CD of, of, of end times prophecy and all kinds of all. And of course, this church is riddled with scandal and weird stuff. But I actually first became aware of him because Brian Zond, and um, Dr. Michael Brown, I should say like, quote unquote, Dr. Michael Brown um, had a debate about atonement and they actually had it at Mike Bickle's church on his campus. And so I was like, what the hell these guys? But Mike, you know, um, they're in Kansas City and that's, uh, that's where Brian Zahn's church is, north of Kansas City and St. Joseph. So um, they, I guess they knew each other somewhat, but I'm watching this multi-part YouTube debate about, it was called the, uh, oh my gosh, it was like the monster God debate. So that's how Brian Zahn does. Brian Zahn would describe the God of, of penal substitutionary atonement as a monster because he requires a blood sacrifice to be mollified. And, and, and so he puts, you know, puts his son on the cross and offers him up as a blood sacrifice. So that sounds like pagan stuff to, to him. Um, sounds like something, something like, you know, tossing virgins in a volcano kind of stuff. It doesn't sound like the Abba of Jesus. But yeah, but that whole end time thing, I, I wrote a, I wrote a little bit about it in the book that I have coming out with choir next year. And my, my take on that was it gives Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity, such an escapist mentality. And it gives them an out to not give a damn about the world they live in because it's all going to burn. Yeah, it's so, an excuse. It's, it's, yeah. It, it's an excuse not to do anything to, to, to help improve life for anybody. Well, yeah, because that's in, not the point. In our society, right. Right, because right. the point of their faith is always so future it's always so that it's at some point God's going to come burn it all to the ground and build us a new one. So, you know, we just drive it like we stole it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah, try to make it happen sooner than later. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I think there, there is some, you know, for, for some of those folks, maybe, maybe not so subtly, you know, well, let's just hasten all of this by, by just trashing yeah. it all right now. And, yeah. uh, so I, I don't know about you. I, I meant to ask you this, and so we'll maybe we'll kick we'll kick this little session off like this. For for me, one of the first questions, one of the first little dominoes that began to fall was that was the end time stuff that I started to read a little bit about and go, you know, not everyone believes this, right? Like like outside of of American evangelical Christianity, the way we have described rapture and end times and all this stuff is thought of as lunacy by a lot of folks. Most mainstream denominations don't give it a second thought. 
And so that was one of the dominoes that started to fall for me. I, I meant to ask you for you, what were some of those first initial like misgivings about the theology that you'd been given? Well, that was one of them. I mean, early on, I mean, I, I, I grabbed onto a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. I remember it well. Yeah, and, and you know, it, so it, it's a very fantastical, almost fiction-type book, although he didn't mean it as fiction. But it, it it's so crazy, it's so far out there. And then it, it was followed up by the Left Behind series, you know, the whole Left Behind thing. And that in itself was just so fantastical. It sounded like a... a, a, a a fiction movie of some kind. But I'll tell you the other, the, the thing that actually really caused me to, to, uh, to question what I was in and what I was thinking and believing, uh, was probably something much more simple. It was the fact that I couldn't reconcile as a teacher. I was teaching kids in, in, uh, Christian schools and high school and so on. We were t- talking about history. We we're talking about religion. And I couldn't reconcile a lot of the questions that kids had. Kids asked, they actually asked pretty good questions. And, and, and I allowed them to. Uh, one of the things that I guess I did, uh, maybe coming out of my hippie days is say, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's rap about it. You know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about it. And they would ask me questions and I couldn't answer some of their questions about evolution. I couldn't answer some of their questions about a six day creation, you know. And it just, it, it did not make sense to a modern 20th century mind anymore. Then, uh, you put that together with things like when you're in a Christian ministry and you experience a divorce. I experienced a divorce in the early nineties. And I had a guy, I had a guy come into my office. I was a principal of a Christian school at the time. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, I, I hear you've got a divorce. Pending, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's rough." You know, I fully expected him to say, "Well, hey, let me know if there's anything I can do to to help you." He didn't. He said, "God has told me that you should resign your position because you're no longer a good role model for kids." And I said, "Whoa, what did God's voice sound like? Tell me what he said." <laughs> you know. Was it, was it like James Earl Jones or, you know, <laughs> Darth Vader or, you know, but I mean, that sort of just non-compassionate, let's kick you while you're down. And I've seen that over and over. It wasn't just for me. I've seen it with other people through the years that, uh, when, when somebody falls within the evangelical faith, they're, there's not a lot of compassion there. There's a lot of kick them while they're down and kick them out. I've talked to many, many people like that that have been, quote, disfellowshipped because they asked the wrong question or their marriage went south or, you know, whatever the case may be. And uh, I realized then that's just not, that wasn't what Jesus was teaching about at all. That's not even close. And so it's it was, I, I realized that faith was, so much part of what you had to believe. You had to believe doctrines and creeds and, you know, propositional statements that I realized that can't be faith, you know, because faith is a way of uh, kind of uh, facing the mystery of our existence in the universe and trying to understand what that is. And And the reality is there's probably not a good answer to that. But faith keeps you going. Faith keeps you moving forward to try to understand and try to incorporate that into your own life. Well, (laughs) when you start talking like that in the evangelical church, they think, you know, they say, well, you better pray about that, brother. Right, right. (laughs) You better better get back on the right track because you're headed one, one, a one way ticket to disfellowship, quite frankly. I find it very interesting that most of our like first steps away from evangelical Christianity is something where we see where the evangelical church doesn't uh, allow room for a marginalized group, right? So be it someone, you know, obviously we've, we've heard, you know, we're all, we all grew up in evangelical church. So we, we know that divorce is something that's absolutely frowned upon and to the point where uh, right where like you uh, may or may not be allowed to be in any kind of leadership role if you have been divorced. Uh, for me, it was the LGBTQI plus community. 
when I was about 18, I was introduced to a whole community that I was told was evil, wrong, you know, just misguided, not didn't understand the biblical, you know, the, the biblical side of what was going on. And I could not, I could not figure out what these people were doing wrong, you know, as I got to know them and, uh, and I got to know them and love them and become friends with them. And it, it just seems like the church wants to continually go after marginalized groups as they are no longer or have never been. Uh, part of the community. And I find this time and time again, it might not be the same group of people, but it is seems to be a marginalized group of people within the evangelical church that they seem to go after first. That seems to be one of the steps that starts breaking down your, your, uh, your connection to this Christian faith. Would you, would you agree with that? You said the word connection and that is absolutely the right the right thing you you talked about you connected with people who were lgbtq and they when you have that connection to people and you and you learn about their lives and who they are that creates a connection you know what that to me is that's faith that is the definition of faith and when we use faith as a set of propositions by which we separate people and we say, hey, you're in that group and you're not in our group because you don't believe this, the right. There's no connection in that. There's no human connection. And I believe if there was anything that Jesus taught at all, it was to connect to people, marginalized people, poor people, people who are, you know, poor spirit, people who are, we, we need to show mercy. You connect to people and that create, that expands your faith. That expands who you are as a human being. And ultimately, I think it, it becomes a question of what kind of human being are you? I think Jesus was interested much more about what kind of people and what kind of humans we were than where we're going to end up after we die. He, re- he really did not teach that much about after our death. He, he, he taught so much more about what, what kind of human are you? Are you connecting to people? Do you love Zacchaeus? Do you love the woman at the well? Do you love the, the guy at the cross who was, you know, the, the Roman soldier? Do you love those people? And when, when the church sets up these rules and these boundaries and these, these barriers to keep you from loving other people who aren't quite within the group, that is the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. I had to get out of that. I mean, and quite frankly, I, for me to become more spiritual, so think about this, I had to get away from the church to become more spiritual. And what I mean by spiritual is connection, connecting with people without any qualification, without any conditions. <laughs> Let's just get together as human beings and love one another. And that goes back to my original place where I started with Christianity. That's what I thought it was about. And by, like I said, by the eighties, it was like, no, no, no. <laughs> there, there's an in-group and an out-group and you better be conservative and you better vote for Reagan and you better like, you know, now it's Donald Trump. You better like Donald Trump and exclude people, right? So you, you uh, are exactly right. I, I think it's about connection and, and, and following that, that teaching of Christ. That, yeah, I, I just don't think Jesus would even recognize what Christianity is in his name today. If he were to come back, well, he'd look around and say, what the hell have you people done with my teaching? This is not what I had in mind. I don't even know. I, I find myself sometimes at a loss for words um, with, with, with the whole thing. But going back to what, what we talked about too then with the, the sort of the, the bastardization of the word evangelical, that's, that's where we land, right? We land in this yeah. place where... Um, that word no longer describes. I tried for a minute. I will, John knows me to know enough to know. I'm, I'm a contrarian enough to know that I would try my damnedest to reclaim the word and say, yes, I am an evangelical in the truest sense of the word, which I think means we're charged with proclaiming the good news. I think where we, where we differ on that is what that good news entails. And for so many of my so-called evangelical brethren, the good news is predicated first and foremost on bad news. And so they feel the need to make sure that you know, you know, it's all bad. By the way, you're bad, but don't worry, I can fix it, you know. So the good news is always prefaced with this really bad news. But, but in the truest sense of the word, I, I still see myself that way, you know. But 
the baggage that comes along with that word is just, it's made it irredeemable, you know? And so it's, uh, but that, that was, uh, you know, some of those dominoes that had to fall then were, were like you said, it, when you're raised inside of a system that, that is setting up, a, is constantly setting up an other, right? Somebody to, someone to, I guess, define yourself against, you know, it's, it's like talking to, uh, we talk to, to folks about, say, white nationalism. We talk to, you know, folks about race relations and, and inside of, inside of whiteness, we've set up white as the, you know, whiteness is the norm by which everything else is compared. We've done the same thing with Christianity. We've decided that Christianity is the norm. And now we will, we did that Derridian thing where we, you know, we set up a binary where we, you know, it's now Christian and non-Christian with Christian now being superior, the implication and everything being subordinate to that. And we've created hierarchies just based on our own definitions. Um, so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that for you as well, um, it made sense to start to tear those structures down, at least for myself. Would you agree? I mean, some, some of those things just need to go away, right? I think the key word you used was the word fear. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I think evangelical Christianity and Christianity in general, maybe, is really predicated on the idea of fear, fear of, of sin, fear of hell, fear of, you know, the devil, fear of the other people who aren't like us. And, and so instead of, <laughs> Instead of preaching the good news, which is, hey, we're all connected. We're right. all good. It doesn't matter. For, forget the fear. Let's come. Let's, let's do what Jesus said and love, love each other as, as we love ourselves. You know, we, we set up these, these artificial boundaries and, and definitions. And, and, and so much of it is based on pure beliefs. That is, you have to believe a certain way. And if you don't, then there's just really, really something wrong with you. But, but that, you know, when we can overcome that, and I think that was the big change for me was to, to realize that is, that is just so opposite of, of the true teachings of Christ. Now, I'm actually kind of optimistic. I think, I, I, I think that evangelicalism has been so the mask has come off now in the last four, five, six years in, in, in the light or the wake of Trumpism that I think it is a dying is as, as loud as it is. It is something that dies sometimes can be very, very loud, but I think it's a dying, um, movement. Let me put it that way. And what I think can come out of it, hopefully when there's enough people who will question and doubt it. See, that's what it's going to take. And that's why the, the part of the definition of my book is finding, you know, faith through doubt and questioning. When we doubt and question all of these assumptions that the evangelical Christianity has, has, has tried to dictate to us, we can find a spirituality that begins to unite us. And I think that's out there. I think that that can happen. Now, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish, but I, I really believe we're headed into something new. And, you know, anything that's dying is going to put up a fuss. Anything that's dying is really going to put up a fight. And that's what we're seeing with evangelical Christianity right now. Uh, but it's just a matter of time. I know my kids, they're, you know, they're in their thirties. My grandkids are in their teens now, right? They won't have anything to do with evangelical. They don't want even to associate with that in their lives. They, they've kind of probably learned from me, I guess. But, and I think that's true of those generations coming up. Uh, it's, it's a dying breed and, uh, and they've done nothing. Evangelical Christianity has only hastened their own demise, in my opinion. No, I agree. I mean, I, I, to me, it's a death rattle, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It, but I've, I have, I've been predicting and I've got friends who have been not just the, not just the death of evangelical Christianity, but the death of Protestantism in general. I feel like Protestantism is, is, is breathing its last breaths as it should. It needs to die as a, as a movement, as a, it's, it's outlived its usefulness. Um, the divisions yeah. are no longer important or pertinent. It's enough already. Right. So, yeah. But you're yeah. right. I mean, I, I had this image in my mind as you were talking about that scene in one of the Lord of the Rings movies where Gandalf has vanquished the, the huge demon god thing, right? And he's falling down into the, 
to, to into the, the to the chasm or whatever, and we're like, Ooh, he beat him, and just before he goes, he swings up and grabs Gandalf by the leg and drags him down with him. Yeah. That's, yeah. that to me feels like what we're engaged in. Like 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 I feel like you're right. I feel like we're you know like that the, like that's a movement that has been exposed. Um, that is probably just desperately clinging to its last little vestiges of influence and power, and is, will make a hell of a lot of noise as it as it as it goes out. But who knows how long that will take? I don't know. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it might be a blink of an eye. But for the rest of us stuck around, I mean, uh, you know, our, our our good buddy Donald J. Trump is going to probably announce his 2024 run here pretty quick, and we may have you know s- you know four more years of darkness ahead of us before. Uh, <laughs> And that that very well could be. I think you have to look at the long game. Evangelicals have a lot of powerful people with a lot of money in their corner. So even though their numbers are going to dwindle, and they will, they're going to dwindle because it's a bankrupt political ideology. It's not even, I even hate to call it a religion. but No, it is a political ideology. You're right. It's a political ideology that... So it's dwindling. And when you look at the demographics, the demographics are clear. The United States is becoming much more diverse. And within 20 years, white people will no longer be the majority of this country. Well, <laughs> that's part of, that's part of the fear that they're trying to drive into, uh, you know, th- this religious ideology is we've got to keep Christianity and, and in particular, by the way, white, white Protestant Christianity in charge. Because that's the way it's always been. Right? Yeah. Well, it's it's on its way out. And <laughs> so it may take, you know, if you look at it over the period of 20, 30 years from now, I think we'll be looking at something very different. But it 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 can still kick a fit between now and then. So Yeah, and you know, and there's no guarantee that what rises up in its place will be any better. So, you know, the pessimist in me says, We are such suckers for systems and structures and everything. You know, we may think we've invented something new. I'm even, you know, within this whole thing we call deconstruction, I'm pessimistic, you know, because it will have its utility for a while. But, you know, what's what's it going to look like in 10 years? Or we're probably going to have to deconstruct what we've been deconstructing. At least, honestly, I kind of hope we will. I mean, otherwise otherwise we we won't have evolved at all. And so... Well, there's another key word, evolve, because... you know, when I look at, and this goes back, I'm going to go back to my book. Sorry, guys. I wrote another chapter. I wrote another, I wrote another chapter about tribalism in my, in my book and how much tribalism is really incorporated really in our DNA is just kind of part of who we are as humans. And, and if I understand the teachings of Jesus, I think Jesus was actually addressing that innate tribalism that we have and saying, we need to go beyond, we need to evolve beyond the, the, the human tribalism. Uh, because he lived in a very tribal world. My God, he couldn't even talk to the Samaritans without getting, you know, in trouble. And so he's, he's, no, no, no. We can move beyond tribalism. So my, my hope. And, and I, I mean, I, it's hard to be optimistic. I understand that. But my hope is that if enough people can evolve beyond the innate tribalism that we have, and maybe the teachings of Jesus, but I would go beyond that. It may be the teachings of Buddha. It may be the teachings of the Dalai Lama. It may be others who can help us with that, right? To move beyond that tribalism and to realize we're all connected. We are all connected. And once we do that and realize it, hey, those, those barriers fall down. There aren't any walls anymore. So I understand your pessimism and I, it's, it's real. I, I don't, I don't doubt it. Uh, but I guess I'm trying to be optimistic. So, well, and in the book I'm writing that, uh, hopefully, uh, choir will publish sometime soon. Uh, one of the comments that I make and I, and, I don't call him out by name, but I, I, I'm taking a quote from Paul Young, which says, um, all roads, all roads don't lead to Christ, but Christ is on all roads. And I've gone a step further and I've said that, um, all roads maybe don't lead to, lead to Christ, but at the end you find Christ. Because I think, like you bring up Buddhism, Taoism, all these other faiths, 
because always there's been this question, right? Um, well, how do we know that places that don't hear the name Jesus are included in this heavenly after afterlife? And you hear, you know, you get these canned answers like, well, God will make himself known. Well, what if the answer is that God has made himself known through these other teachings of teachings of, say, someone like Buddha? So I've, I have come to the conclusion that I don't, that Jesus is on all paths and all paths lead to redemption. And that might be through a Buddhist, through Buddhist teachings, through Taoist teachings. And, um, and I find more faith affirming theology, whatever you want to call it, outside of the Christian faith than I ever do in the Christian faith. Um, when it comes to things like, being um, mindful, being present, being part of nature, being part of the process that moves us forward as human beings to the point where we love one another as opposed to finding out how we're different and how we hate each other. And if it, and if you find that through Buddha, I, I applaud you. I, I, I no longer feel like that's not, a, that's not an accessible way to become a better human being. I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I go back to actually one of the one of the sort of watershed moments for me was I read you know I I, I read Rob Bell's book Love Wins right and uh, you know so I read that book and instantly became a heretic because that's what happens when you read Rob Bell you become a heretic <laughs> and uh, and and I and I but I resonated there was a I think early on in the book he says something about having quoted Gandhi somewhere and and somebody comments you know well you you know he's in hell right and he's like. Oh, you, 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 you know, this, you, you have confirmation, you know, like, like, but he's, so he starts asking these questions about what do we do with, with, with truth, um, that maybe seems to come from outside our tradition is not all truth, God's truth. And, but you know, it, it's, it's one of those deals, you know, it's like, I, I get, I get told all the time that there's a slippery slope we're on and I'm like, I sure as hell hope so. I hope it's like a slip and slide. <laughs> like, I hope we just like, you know, I, mean, I, I want to be like Paul Simon slip sliding away. And, uh, it, Come on, we could do a little Simon and Garfunkel, right? Yeah, oh yeah. The bigger your destination, the more you're slip sliding away, baby. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I was going through the chapters or the or the parts of your book too. I'm I'm kind of looking through it as we talk, and I'm the other thing I, that I that I thought was interesting was uh, the the whole the whole faith and gay rights thing. How, was that a difficult hurdle for you to get over? Speaking oh. for myself, it was. I'll be yeah, I'll be honest and say me. that was a tough one. I'm um, not that I ever hated or disliked anybody. But so deeply ingrained in my evangelical brain was this was this thing. It was a difficult thing. But what was your experience with that? Yeah, that was that. I, I write several chapters on on uh, gay rights and my trans my transformation on that whole that whole thing. And and it kind of goes back to the idea of redefining faith as connecting with people, right? As as opposed to setting up these these barriers. But I, uh, I, I recount a, uh, a, a, an experience I had as a young evangelical in our church youth group where we had a gay kid join our group and, and we just, we just treated him awful. I mean, and we felt like we had permission to do that because, <laughs> you know, you got the clobber verses out and you can tell him, yeah, you know, you need to choose a different, a different orientation and all of this. And it was actually, I'll tell you what, it was actually my daughter. She's not gay, but she, she was a, she stood up for gay rights in, in school and with other kids that she knew. She had a lot of gay friends. And over time, through her, her understanding and working and, and just bringing her gay friends over to the house. Again, it goes back to connection. I, I got to know those kids. I got to hear about one of her friends who got kicked out of his house because his parents didn't want him there anymore because he was gay. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it was such a transformation. And then, you know, pro- not long after I walked away from evangelical faith, that, that whole thing opened up to me that, you know what? And, and it kind of goes back to Rob Bell. Love wins. Love wins every time. And it doesn't matter who, who you love. If you love someone, love them. And that's going to create that connection. So, yeah, I've come uh, completely turned around on that issue. And when you're teaching in a Christian school, yeah, you you better not be talking about gay rights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. If yeah. you want to 
if you want a one-way ticket, you know. To unemployment. Yeah. That's probably one of the fastest ways to do it. The other one is abortion. You know, you can't come out and talk about any kind of choice. But, but the gay, the, the whole gay community thing is, is so important, I think. But that's an issue. You know, I write a chapter in the book. I hate to keep going back to that. I talk about the irrelevance of evangelical Christianity because they have placed their last stand, just like Custer. Yep. On the, on the hill of gay marriage or anti-gay marriage, I should say. And as we progress, as we evolve, people are looking at that and saying, are you people crazy? Are you, how cruel and abusive can you be to people who who have, so I, I think again, this is just a matter of time. Give this a little more time. Uh, and our society has come around very quickly, quite frankly, on this issue, just like I did. And we're going to see, we're going to see evangelicals being very, very marginalized. I don't want to see anybody marginalized, but they're marginalizing themselves by taking these kinds of stands and, uh, that, that hurt people. Yeah. And and I'm fine with John a distinction, by the way. I don't want to marginalize people, but I'm fine with marginalizing hate. So you yeah, can stop yeah. being hateful anytime you want to. And I will know, I'm not interested in, you know, in marginalizing an individual. You know, I feel like Jesus is calling out the Pharisees when he didn't call out, you know, specific Pharisees. He's calling out a structure. He's calling out right. a system that marginalizes and dehumanizes. And so yeah. you know, feel free to change your opinion on this anytime and open your arms to people. One of the things that John and I have talked about a bunch, you know, is that I don't think bias in general, I don't think those kinds of things, I don't think they ever survive true relationships. I, the yeah, second I yeah. began to actually form real relationships with people, those things had to go away because, you know, biases are always built on caricatures. They're always built on, on things that are just not true. And so all of a sudden you have, oh my gosh, there's, you know, there's more to this person than who they have sex with. Oh, right. what, what a shock. The gay agenda might actually not have anything to do with, you know, turning your kids gay. It might actually have to do with, with human rights and, wanting to live a life that it's, you know, where they have agency and choices and they can pursue their dreams. So when those, when those things begin to be defined different ways, I think you're right. I think the evangelical mindset will find itself marginalized. But yeah. well, at the end of the day, you're free to leave that mindset anytime you want to and come over to the dark side. <laughs> we have, exactly. we have pie and coffee. So come on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I have a good friend. I have a good friend that I worked with who, who a female, uh, who's married. She's straight, but she has a terrific relationship with a gay man. And, and I, I know both of them. I spent time with them and just, it's so fun to watch them together. The straight woman with a gay guy. So I started looking into that and I found out there's a whole area of research between relationships between straight women and gay men. So as I studied that, I put a chapter in the book called What Straight Men Need to Learn from Gay Men About How to Love Women. It's very counterintuitive. It's very counterintuitive because in many, many ways, one of the things that straight women love about gay men is how strong they are emotionally and personally. And of course, a lot of, a lot of straight guys are just so, you know, uh, insecure and they think they got to be patriarchs and they've got to, you know, do all this. It, but, but that whole relationship thing becomes very, very different once you begin to see it in action, uh, in a different way. So anyway, that, I yeah, just throw that yeah, up. I like that. I mean, that's, there, there's gotta be something to that, to, to learning how to love without a perceived agenda too, you know, yeah, without being patriarchal. How, how do men yeah. relate to women without being patriarchal? Right. It's, or without sexualizing them. Or without, yeah. right? I mean, there's, there's, there's a whole history of, of, of men pretty much just objectifying and sexualizing women, even yeah. women we aren't in a relationship with, because that's just the way we've been taught to think of them. And yeah. it must be pretty damn refreshing to have a friendship well, with someone that's not based on any of that. Exactly. And if, and if, and if straight men would just simply take a minute and observe how gay men interact with women, they would learn a heck of a lot about how to relate to women. It, it it really would change things. 
But uh, anyway, you're not wrong, man. They're not wrong. That's uh, that's why I started watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy because uh, <laughs> you know, hey, you, you laugh, but that that yeah. show, dude, that is that is a groundbreaking show. I thought it was silly, so I never watched it. And my wife started watching it like last year. It's touching. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is amazing because what you see in action is what we're talking about right now, which is where yeah. where these where these these folks go into. Um, situations where they might otherwise find themselves at odds. They right. form relationships, there are connections made, and suddenly there is this this love between these people that are basically strangers that you can begin to see blossom. And you go, oh, look at that. Humanity wins out over ideology eventually. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. I, just, I just, I think it's amazing. You don't have to go too far back in our podcast to find quotes from me saying things like this that the red button issue for conservatives is abortion. And there's going to be a point to this here in a second. And that you will never see them change their position because they need you to be scared to death that abortion is the, is the one thing that we need to fix in this country. But they will never fix it. They will never, ever fix it because they need you to vote from that. Well, we all know that Roe v. Wade was overturned recently, and that's because they found a better red button issue. And that was LGBTQIA rights, trans rights, and all of it within that community. So when they found a better red button issue, they went ahead and pushed Roe v. Wade to be destroyed, to be turned over, because they now have a much better red button issue to scare the shit out of the conservative right, and that is the LGBTQIA agenda, and that is to take over the bathrooms, take over whatever the fuck they're talking about. They're I don't taking I, over Disney, John. Yeah, they're taking they're over Disney, kids, man. And so you don't have to go back very far into our to our episodes where I say that abortion will never be overturned because if they overturn it, they can't get your votes anymore. And I have to stand correct. Yeah, I have to stand corrected because. They found something that even is more, and again, I'm putting this in quotes because we're not on video for, for our listeners, more scary than abortion. And that is LGBTQIA rights and their agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And that. No, I've already been called, I've already been called a groomer. And this, oh yeah, within my family, I've been called a groomer. Uh, because I'm kind of for, you know, let's not ban books. Let's let, let's talk to kids about what they're thinking and feeling about themselves. And, and so they think I'm trying to groom them. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's like, okay, I see where this is going. You're right. I think you're right, John. I think it's the new, it's the new wedge issue that will allow the, the Republican Party to rile up. Let's rile up some people so they'll come out and vote. And that's probably what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, it's a lot the, of people. The, the scary part about it is, okay, so we've overturned Roe v. Wade. The next thing we're going to overturn is gay marriage. And, that, and right after that is going to be, and Clarence Thomas, you should be scared to death because the next thing after after we get rid of gay marriage is going to be interracial marriage. And he is, he is just quietly standing there letting this happen. And I believe it's 2022, almost 2023, but I feel a lot like we're back in the 1950s. I'll give you an example, John. Check this out. They're going to vote on a, an ordinance in my town tomorrow. And the ordinance, um, is a, is to create my town of San Angelo, Texas as a sanctuary city for the unborn. A sanctuary city for the unborn. So we are going, oh we're, and I bet it passes. Well, they want to create the most draconian anti-abortion measures. You know, it, it, listen, it gets, it's so obviously you, you won't. We don't have a plan. We don't have a Planned Parenthood anymore. I haven't had one for years. But they're gonna they're gonna make it illegal. They're gonna actually coerce people to rat on their neighbors um, because if you are found guilty of providing transportation to somebody, if you're a if you're a business owner and you provide. The insurance that covers abortion, you can be prosecuted. If they find out that you donate to pro-abortion causes, you can be prosecuted. If you actually take somebody across, you know, to another part of Texas where abortion is not illegal in Texas, it's illegal. It, it will be in our town. And again, I don't know how much of this has any teeth. I don't know how much of it will be enforceable. But to me, it's man, that's 
that's going way beyond saying abortion should be rare or, you know, right? Anyway, so it, yeah. it, yeah. it's, getting, it's getting very hands made tale over here, man. I'm just going to, you know, I'm so angry at any of this. It's just going to be another soap, soapbox moment for me. Uh, and, you know, our listeners are used to that. But first of all, I stand here as a white, middle-aged, cisgender man saying anybody who ever needs transportation, any place to get them to a place where they can get an abortion, my vehicle is ready, willing, and able to get you wherever you need. But to, to criminalize this is so absurd and, in the words of Nat DeCronian, I mean, we've seen the ads on the left side, and I and I have a tendency to agree with them. Where they have this ad where this person's talking about, you know, hey, this is what you're going to do for your pregnancy, and this is how this is going to move forward. And then they pan away, and it's like a it's a ten or thirteen year old girl, right? Because it's um, you know, you don't you don't you know, God forbid, we we offer them any kind of chance at an abortion because this is probably incest or rape or whatever. It's just so obnoxiously crazy, evil to expect a 13-year-old person to, to carry a, a baby to term and be born and then have the same group of religious right people now give her shit because she can't afford to cover just basic life and needs for this child. And now she's now a loser because she needs welfare, uh, some kind of you know, food food stamps or anything like that to take care of this child, which now we call her someone who is not willing to be part of the society, right? And be like a productive part of society. It's not very pro-life, is it? No, no. And, and that's the, yeah. and that's the yeah. other thing that I wish that, you know, you on the right, and, I, and I'm talking to you specifically, and I know that you don't listen to this podcast, but if you're happen to listen, you on the right, you're not pro-life, you're pro-birth. Absolutely, have always only ever been pro birth. You're not pro life because if that was the case, you would not send 18 year olds out of the country to die for some crazy war that you think is justified. You will not send people to death row because uh, eye for an eye. You, it, it, all of this is just so ridiculous. You're not pro life. You're pro birth, and you you need to admit that to yourselves and learn from criminalized. Yeah, to criminalize abortion is the opposite of pro-life. It's pro-death because it will result in more women dying from whatever kind of abortion they'll seek out. Abortion won't go away. This is not going to end abortion just because they criminalize it. No. It's very much like drugs <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> If you want to, if you want to stop drug use, well, probably the last thing you want to do is criminalize it all. Let's think of another way. Maybe there's a little more creative way we have here to deal with, with things like abortion. And there are ways. I mean, Colorado, uh, made birth control free for teenagers, uh, and women, uh, and their abortion rates went down by 50% in a, in a, couple year period. I mean, there are ways to reduce abortion if that's your goal. And and actually I'm not a, I'm not opposed to that objective. But but you do you don't do it by criminalizing women and making them have to go to back alleys to find an abortion. Uh it's 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 pro death in my opinion. It's not it's not pro life at all. Imagine this education and access to resources actually works in reducing abortions. And, and, you see this, and you see it play out in the numbers. Anytime there's, anytime there's a Republican or a conservative in office, abortions go higher. There, are fewer, there were fewer abortions in eight years of Obama than there were the previous eight years of Bush. It's just a, a demonstrable fact. So the only thing I can conclude is that prohibition doesn't work. It's never that, worked. Um, it's never worked. That, that curtailing behavior does not have anything to do with just saying no. But the only other difference I can think of is that there, during those eight years of Obama, there was like, there was more access to birth control. There was more access to education. There was more, there were just more, more resources made available. And well, lo and behold, if that was your goal was to reduce the number of abortions, then, then we should be looking at the data to see how that gets accomplished. It, it's absolutely insane. And the data shows that 
premarital sex or whatever you want to call it, sex outside of marriage, does not diminish under any political party. The only difference is the access to some kind of birth control that happens. Well, imagine that. The human beings are going to have sex. Yeah. Wow. That's just great. Yeah. I saw a really funny meme though, John. You want me to describe the meme I saw? Sure. You, you, you know how you solve the problem of, of, of premarital sex of being a sin? You, you just never get married. <laughs> it was never premarital. It was just outside of marriage. It was just outside so, of marriage. So, sex. <laughs> if you never intend to get married, you never had premarital sex. You're good to go, man. So there's your, there's your, there's your rebuttal. Um, man, it's been, I tell you what, you guys need to buy this book. I am, I, I, I say that having not read it, but having, while we're chatting, I'm, I'm going through the chapters. I'm going, yes, yes, yes. Um, Jim, Jim Palmer wrote your forward. There's a, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, he so, was, he was terrific. He was a real help and mentor for me. He's such this a nice book. guy, man. Confessions of a recovering evangelical. I can't even say the word, John, saying the word. I'm going to turn out, I'm going to end up like Fonzie. I'm going to date myself who, who couldn't say he was sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I just, every time I try to say the word evangelical, it will, it will sort of fall out of my mouth, but confessions of a recovering evangelical, overcoming fear and certainty to find faith through doubt and questions. Forward by Jim Palmer, who is someone we'd love to get on the show. So if you can help us with that, that'd be great. But man, uh, uh, choir's just doing awesome stuff, man. They just they just they keep are. putting out good stuff. And and Daniel, I I, I wish you all the success, man. I, I see that your book is is doing really really well. Um, we'll do yeah, our very best yeah. to, to see if we can't bump those numbers up by two or three, um, <laughs> or five or six listeners. We'll certainly. Um, pull their resources and buy one copy. Come on, so now. that'll be good. Um, <laughs> no, it's a uh, uh, man. We've just appreciated having you on the on the on the podcast, man. Thanks for coming. Well, hey, it's been fun. I've enjoyed talking with you guys, and uh, I love your podcast. And I, I wish you the best with this too. So, hey, keep it up, keep going. Thank All you, right. sir. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.